Greetings, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. I have a very special guest for you today, Mark Tribe, Professor of Architecture Emeritus from the University of California, Berkeley. Some of his uh, honors include the Guggenheimer Fellowship, Fulbright Fellowships, the American Academy in Rome Fellowship, ASLA, American Society of Landscape Architect Honor Awards, and Best Exhibition and Publication Award from the Society of Architectural Historians. He has served on the board of Senior Fellows, Dumbarton Oaks Program in Landscape Studies, a juror for the American Academy in Rome as editorial board member for Design Issues. AIGA Journal, Places Design Book Review, Journal of Garden History, and a contributing editor for Print Magazine. In addition, he has also found time to teach design studios, lecture on Japanese architecture and gardens, seminars on specialized topics including landscape architecture, criticism, art, and modern Scandinavian architecture. Uh, Today, the book is The Landscapes of Georges Decom. Doing Almost Nothing, published by Oro Editions in 2018. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So let's begin with uh, tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. Uh, Well, I studied architecture, so I have both bachelor's and master's degrees uh, in architecture, as well as uh, a master's of arts in design. And so I have absolutely no background in landscape architecture, and for many years, decades, uh, I taught architecture and history uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, and gradually drifted into uh, getting interested in landscape architecture, uh, which was propelled by a visit to Japan in the early 1970s. And probably from about 1980 on, most of my writing and research work and even lecturing uh, has been focused on landscape architecture Uh, particularly of the modern period, uh, with uh, probably specialization in modern American landscape, as well as Scandinavia and Japan. Uh, So what was your motivation and your interest uh, in George Decombe and for writing this book? Well, well, almost everything I've written uh, starts with observation. I, I don't really start with a theoretical perspective. I've known Georges, I think, since the mid-90s and have followed his work uh, because it represents a kind of excellence uh, that I very much appreciate in that it's very thoughtful, um, using a minimum amount of resources uh, with very considered interventions, uh, and in the end, something that's both uh, responsive as as well as very beautiful. Because he, too, started as an architect, there's a sense of detail and use of materials in his work uh, that I haven't found very often in the work of landscape architects, although that's certainly not categorical. There are some very good (laughs) uh, details among landscape architects, such as uh, uh, Dan Kiley, Laurie Olin, and uh, the SWA group, among others. 
So um, uh, just the, the motivation for the book was at some point, uh, Georges uh, got to be well known among academic circles, but not necessarily among the profession. Uh, he is in Europe, but not in the United States. So I think this idea of minimal intervention uh, was really um, something that I thought uh, I kept using his work as examples for my students um, as something that they may pursue or should pursue to be more accurate. Uh, and then the question was, how do you put that all together uh, for some kind of coherent storytelling? Uh, but for this book, which was unlike others I've done, um, the structure is, is thematic rather than chronological. Who is Georges and, uh, or Georges, and uh, why is he important to bring to um, an American audience? Uh, Georges is a Swiss, uh, uh, what they call Swiss Romande, a French uh, Swiss uh, landscape architect who studied at the University of Geneva, where he's still based today in Geneva. Uh, he also studied his master's degree, was at the Architectural Association in London. And he uh, returned to Geneva after working in, in different offices, established his own practice, although he too was uh, also an educator and became professor of architecture at the University of Virginia, uh, Geneva, his uh, alma mater, of course. His work too gravitated from architecture. Some of his early works were renovations or even things with interiors or new buildings towards working uh, in the landscape, and an important early project, which was done uh, as kind of a pro bono uh, project through the architecture school, was a park in the Geneva suburb of Lancy, uh, which was done in the 1980s and went on, actually, I think, for the better part of the decade. And I think that turned him more consequentially uh, to practice in landscape architecture. I, I really love this title, Doing Almost Nothing. Um, that was kind of something that I had wanted to pursue um, in a studio project, but I think it got misunderstood. And I think that in some of the book you, you talked about that too, is uh, it's it's not really doing nothing. What, what is it that he's trying to accomplish? Well, uh, Georges frequently quotes the, uh, oh, he's a polymath. So uh, his name is uh, André Corbeau, uh, who's... Uh, uh, deceased now, uh, who was in a philosopher and a geographer and an urban historian and, I don't know, a bunch of other things. Uh, and uh, Corbeau's, I think, as far back as the 1950s, maybe early 1960s, uh, proposed something for, uh, actually, it was architectural preservation or conservation and drawn from the restoration of painting, uh, that there were three parts to it. One, that there should be a minimal intervention. Uh, second, that the intervention, whatever part that you do or add, should be noticeable. You shouldn't try to blend with what was there completely. And third, <clears throat> under ideal conditions, it could be reversible. Um, the, that third category perhaps doesn't apply to landscape uh, as much. Uh, but the first two certainly did. So Georges adopted this in his work. And I think there is a lesson, one, that the intervention should be minimal, just how many resources, what do you have to do in order to affect the program that, that you've been given? Uh, and two, that it should be noticeable. So that's to say that 
uh, he would never do a project that's supposed to look like nature created it itself. You know, in fact, if it is a human construction, there should be something about it that informs people there that it does. And often uh, he develops a lot of interest in his work on this um, juxtaposition, at times confrontation, actually, of what's been added and inserted uh, as opposed to what was there originally. Uh, the title, Doing Almost Nothing, uh, refers, in fact, to what a Geneva newspaper uh, had as criticism, or I think it was even a headline or a subhead, uh, referring to a project he did for a memorial to the 700th anniversary of the founding of the Swiss Confederation uh, in the early 90s. And each of the cantons of, of Switzerland were given a segment of this path around the lake, Lake Uri, uh, where uh, based on their population. So the uh, canton of Geneva got two kilometers. Well, most of the other people I'm told, I never saw them, kind of did a little monument or something that marked the contribution of that canton to the, uh, the Swiss nation. And Georges said, no, that really the best thing we can do is make the landscape itself the monument. So his interventions in that project were doing things like uh, regrading the path where necessary, uh, shoring up hillsides, uh, restoring railings, uh, planting new wildflowers, um, etc., that basically were reinforcing or restoring uh, kind of the path that had once been around the lake. Uh, he said, in fact, the concept was to use a broom, was to sweep away what had hidden the original intentions. In addition, he worked with uh, three artists on that project, uh, Richard Long, uh, the British artist who takes walks and does piles of stones and other marking in the landscape, um, uh, Max Newhouse, who did a sound piece, and Carmen Perrin, who uh, her contribution was working with art students to scrub a couple of these what are known as erratic uh, boulders that went much further than they normally do. And they did because they were white and reflected the sunlight and the heat uh, so that they didn't sink into the glacier. So that whole thing was very, very subtle in a way. It, it provided an amenity where people could walk. Uh, there were orchestrated views looking out towards the lake. But for um, apparently the journalist who wrote the article, uh, this really wasn't quite enough and not monumental, sufficiently monumental. And that's why they said he, he did almost nothing. <laughs> you know, there was just one little observation not little, observation post uh, where he reinforced uh, this circular enclosure using uh, uh, wire, wire netting. Um, and that was probably the strongest architectural statement in this two-kilometer path. It's very, uh, yeah, it is very artistic. It's uh, what you, uh, instead of you're drawing what you see and not what you think, kind of like that phrase, it, your, your mind, your eye completes uh, like the line through it without having to actually do it like through the landscape it sounds like mm -hmm. do something like that yeah i love the title uh, the the i just would tell since this is a listening show uh i like how they did this book they, they even did the uh, embossed doing almost nothing on the title this is a nice beautiful cover thank you they did a great job. Well, uh, so I, I, I design and produce all the books I do <laughs> out of self-defense, <laughs> actually. <laughs> 
Well, most design, graphic designers aren't paid to read the books they design, and things are done, particularly academic presses, are done by formula. Uh, and I think actually the design of the book is just as important as the text and the pictures in the book, because uh, not only getting the relationship uh, between text and image, but also image, image to image, there's kind of a rhetoric of an image uh, that derives, and that's important. And uh, as I said, most designers are unfamiliar with the topic that they're designing. And, um, but as I said, part of it is a, a self-defense and part of it's just wanting to control everything. But uh, I, I design all the books that I... And thank you for noticing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Uh, for, for those who, obviously, they're listening, you can't see. But yeah, I, I definitely noticed the layout, the format, everything is just, uh, it's just perfect. Thank you. It's beautiful. Uh, so uh, that kind of leads me to my next question. So what was uh, his design process? Uh, he said, you, in part of the book, you said he was very interested in cinema. Uh, what were the influences for his designs and his process? Well, uh, when he was a student, I think uh, in Geneva and also in London, he said he went to the movies quite often. And uh, it, it was a pretty experimental time uh, in the 1960s, 1970s. You have various directors working, one of whom was Jean-Luc Godard, uh, who Georges actually did a little studio for a renovation, one, a very, very small project, <coughs> which he found to be uh, quite important in his thinking. Uh, no, I think it's uh, almost a process of revelation. It's always saying, you know, what, what, what do we find in the existing conditions? Uh, there was an architectural movement centering around uh, Peter and Allison Smithson in the 50s, 60s, I guess, which was called As Found, uh, which, of course, sound that was for architecture. You begin with what is there. Of course, that sounds very landscapey. Uh, of course, you always start with what's there. Um, even if it seems that nothing is there, there's always a story to the site. So I think Josh starts, he still draws, <coughs> unlike uh, today where people use the computer, he still sketches. Excuse me. <coughs> mm. And from that develops it. But uh, on many of these later projects, they're very, very complex requiring the input of engineers, uh, hydrologists, plant specialists, ecologists. Uh, and he works with <clears throat> a studio in Geneva called ADR, Atelier Decombe Rampini. Uh, the Decombe in this case is not <laughs> Georges, but his son, Julian. Uh, and that office takes care of a lot of the uh, technical and construction drawings and engineering. Uh, but Georges is very unusual that even in a large project like the restoration of the River Air, uh, which we'll probably get to later, um, he's on the site almost every day looking at things and checking details and stuff, which is very unusual um, for those offices that operate only under the notion of how many billable hours you're allowed to spend on each project. Uh, but I think from those uh, initial sketches and drawings, things become, and then it's more or less normal. You do studies, you do models. Um, I think there are less uh, use of computer simulation. It's more uh, sketching and physical models. Uh, but I have not been 
a part of any of those processes, so I can only only guess. But I do know the, the for this river restorations, uh, the the firm or the loose affiliation was called Superpositions, and it involved quite a few people in order to get a project like that uh, realized. Oh, but getting back to cinema, I, I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, like he's interested in sequential movement and all this. Uh, I mean, it's more a cultural phenomenon. And, you know, everything is an influence. Um, uh, Le Corbusier once said that, you know, when people say, uh, can you describe your influences? And he said something like, well, I'm a lion. I've eaten a lot of meat over the years, and I can't really say which one was the important one. I mean, uh, Georges' uh, father was a bookseller. He grew up in a rather uh, cultivated family, I think, although it was very simple. He did some farming as well. Uh, but he always read, he looked, he traveled. Uh, and all of these are formative uh, on him rather than, I don't think it was just cinema alone that had a major influence. Well, yeah, you talked about that in the book, uh, some of his, uh, were some of the, I, I'm not familiar with him until I read this book. What are some other um, important uh, projects that he has done? Well, if you look back, they're basically one at a time, you know? <laughs> it's not like there's a large office that's banging out a lot of things. And uh, after these initial things, the Parc at Lancy is, is one of the major works from the 80s. Uh, and then... Um, I mean, other big projects, uh, the, it's called the Jardin des Eoles, uh, or the uh, Cour du Maroc, uh, which is a, a park near the Gare de l'Est in Paris, uh, which was done with uh, Michel and Claire Corrigeau. And, uh, of course, this restoration of the River Air, which has been going on for at least 15 years now. Uh, most recently, um, They've just been getting uh, winning a lot of competitions. I think they have six or seven projects in Belgium, uh, but none of these have been fully realized yet. But probably if you look at the number of major works, it would be 10 or 15. Uh, it's not an office that just cranks things out. Uh, they're very thought out. And uh, uh, many of the projects just span quite a number of years. Oh, uh, well... Give me, give me another one. The Jardin de Eoles, that is the gardens of the winds or the wind, or uh, this uh, is in uh, a community uh, northeast of the Gare de l'Est, the eastern uh, station in Paris, uh, and it's heavily immigrant. And there were very little green space, if any, very little open space, I believe. And this was, uh, the site was an old railroad yard, which was long and narrow. <clears throat> and there was a competition uh, to turn this into a park. And uh, I never saw the other entries to the competition, but apparently they were described as wanting to chop this long, narrow site, maybe with a proportion of 1 to 10, 1 to 8, 1 to 10, into um, chunks so that you wouldn't notice the full length that had been railroad lines, in fact. Uh, 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 George's project done with uh, the Corrigeuse, uh, in fact, kind of celebrated this linearity and uh, developed the, the site in strips. Um, 
there are some quirks to it because there was supposed to be a building in the northwest corner, and so the, the land had to go up over the top of this building. And then in the end, the building wasn't built, but everything was done, so it still has that rise in the park, which probably helps it to some degree. But there are interesting features, like one strip is, is water filled with aquatic plants. Uh, one is a large green lawn for play and open space. And uh, down the middle is a big gravel um, pit, I guess you could say, or like a sandbox, except it's all gravel, uh, that they were leaving more or less uh, for indigenous plants to come back and grow almost as an experimental uh, uh, area. And um, the park has been heavily used. I mean, almost too heavily used. One part of one of the strips was going to be, it was a wooden deck which connect directly to the city streets and was intended to be open 24 hours, unlike the rest of the park. But uh, it's a heavily, as I said, uh, immigrant community and uh, people have been using it for camping. So there have been periodic problems with trying to clear the park of these uh, squatters, essentially. Uh, but in fact, there's no place for them to go, you know, to just, uh, they have to be displaced and trucked somewhere else. Uh, but that the basic project itself is very, very interesting. There's lots of interesting details in uh, the walls, in the grading of the topography, and in the planting. There are also some allotment gardens as well, which have been very popular. Um, you know, so it has a social dimension, uh, as well as a, a one that's dealing with function and sports and activities and recreation and also a botanical aspect as well. I mean, it's just giving a good park uh, with a variety of uh, facilities uh, to the neighborhood. Oh, well, that kind of uh, reminds you, uh, there was a quote in here. You said it was one of his favorites. I like this. Uh, the imagination is not something which comes from nothing. It isn't a, it isn't a creation. It's only elevating the usual temperature of things to heat things up. Why is this his favorite quote, and how did he apply it to some other of his projects? Well, you probably have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's his favorite quote. It came from somewhere, right, uh, who said that you, you don't invent something totally out of the air, uh, that really to make a feature noticeable or to use it as kind of the core idea for a project, you're... It, you're basic, you can do it basically by increasing the intensity of something. So it could be that if you found, you know, X examples of some species on the site, you might then plant a hundred of them. You intensify their presence in some way. And that's a place that you can look for a generating idea for a project. Uh, I think that's a, it's a very rich idea. And I think he does use that. Um, it could be found in plants. It could be found, I think, most often in the topography of the land or the quality of the soil. Uh, or it could be where views are. You intensify the view to somewhere. Uh, but like that idea of as found, of using something that's already there, this is basically saying you don't displace, <clears throat> you don't overlay with something new, you intensify, you increase the heat, as they say. Uh, and he used it, in fact, uh, when talking about the design of that, uh, the renaturalization re re of the uh, Air River. Uh, it's funny to say that you're turning up the heat 
of the river, but, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a mixed metaphor. It means the intensity of intensifying what was already there, I guess is the best way to sum it up. Well, I guess that kind of goes back to a little bit about, uh, you know, making it, uh, it, it's doing almost nothing, but he's, he is doing something to make it uh, a human intervention in his design so that it's noticeable. Yes. Yes. And that's one of Owen's oh, strategy for doing it. Is there a question in that? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. oh, just okay. an observation. Well, one of my what, what, an example of this would be in that commemorative project, which was called the Swiss Way, the one uh, for the founding of the Swiss Confederation. Uh, there's a place where the path goes along, and uh, there's a fall of the land, and oh. 10 or 15 feet off is a natural boulder that I think either had a plaque on it or uh, was chiseled into the boulder, uh, something in reference to, uh, I think a poet said, this was a beautiful place. The railings <coughs> that kept you from falling over the edge, <laughs> if you wanted to take a closer look, um, had been painted, I think, dark green. They were pipe railings, you know, typical, of, looked like 1930s or something like that. They painted dark green, but over the years, all the paint had disappeared, and, uh, or almost all of it, and now it was rusted. So to make people more aware of this rock monument just off the path, uh, of course, they cleared away the vegetation that had grown over it and made a little niche or a setting for it. But then they replaced the top rail of this two-rail pipe railing with stainless steel. So all the rest is dark and green or rusted or brown or covered with dirt. But this one line of stainless steel was literally underlining the boulder as a clue that said, look here. There wasn't a sign on the path that said, historical marker, look right or look <laughs> left. You know, it's that kind of thing where, where it's an intervention into it. Um, just by very, very simple means and subtle means. Many people will get it. Many people won't. That's not the idea. It's not like having a big arrow or it says, you know, scenic view or something like that. Uh, it's more subtle. Yeah. And uh, like it's uh, and the quote I, I kind of like to it was, it is the place of wind, the birds and the distant horizons, um, as well as a place from which one can see more intimately flowers, plants, and the entire new vegetal, vegetal mosaic that Will developed. Uh, so he just uh, using uh, symbolism more for signage and uh, influencing people's walk through his projects. Do you know what project was was that in relation to the uh, the Swiss Path? I think the Swiss Way. I I would suspect that was, and that's as I said, what the idea was revealing the qualities of the landscape that that already existed. And uh, obviously not every project lends itself to that, a heavily urban project for a plaza wooden. But I think on the more natural areas, they've been doing that. But a lot of things now are <coughs> uh, propelled by ecology and uh, like this this river project, which maybe we we'll talk about here, uh, the river Air, A-I-R-E, Air, um, is in the G Geneva Valley, and it was put into a canal, well, over a long period of time, 
from about uh, the late 19th century up to about 1930, I think, 1940. And it was for flood control. It wasn't about navigation. Uh, but over the years, uh, the construction in the valley had increased. The climate had been changing. All these various things uh, were impinging on this original canal uh, to the point where they were afraid uh, that there could be some large floods as a result, that the canal would be insufficient to uh, maintain any large spring melts or storms or other things that could propel a flood. Uh, so they held a competition uh, in early 2000s uh, to what they, the term in French is renaturalize the canal. Uh, the other teams competing, I think there were four other ones, just said, okay, we're going to destroy the canal and make a nice winding river out of it. And the superpositions team, of which Georges was the, let's say, the lead designer, said, no, 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 this canal is a, represents a cultural landscape, and we should maintain it in some ways. However, we must address all these needs for uh, flood control. So what they have a neat little diagram, if you can imagine a straight line which represents the canal and then a waving line that goes through it and past it and back around it again. So what they're doing is reshaping the floodplain. Much of it, it's on agricultural land. Uh, and taking the, this river, this curving river um, that resulted from this, and shaping that to some degree so that there's a dialogue between the remnants of the old canal, uh, one part of which uh, was made into a, a, lin a series of linear gardens, as Georges calls them, and in other places looking more natural. Uh, one of the interesting things about the approach was that uh, Georges said that they, they believe that the river should be their co-designer. So what they would do would be to uh, do something with regrading or testing things, whatever. And instead of just trying to maintain that, they would wait until the next spring thaw when you get a heavy uh, rushing of water and the river would reshape what they had done. It would adjust it to some degree and give them clues to what to do in the next stage because it's, it's been done over four, four stages. And now I think there's stages five and six uh, that will continue. So it is to be a recreational facility, but it's there for flood control. A lot of negotiation had to take place between the designers, the government, and the uh, farmers in agriculture saying, um, agreeing to allow their land to be flooded if, if necessary at certain times, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an incredibly comprehensive project, which I find to be probably the most uh, consequential landscape project of the uh, this century, possibly, if we put uh, Duisburg Nord by Peter Lotz and Partners, uh, which was the uh, in the last century, and that was, uh, you know, I think became a landmark or a model in uh, the conversion of uh, post-industrial landscapes to recreational use. Uh, I think the River Air Project is really a model. Uh, the issue is, of course, could anyone ever adopt that model with the same sophistication as the superpositions group did? And I seriously doubt that. Um, landscape architects tend not to be educated with the same interest in making forms 
that uh, architects are. Uh, we say that architects have an edifice complex. You know, they want to build, they want to make something. <laughs> uh, while landscape architects often want to preserve or save something. Uh, that varies, obviously, uh, with the person and with the country. The Dutch are not afraid to make things uh, since they made the whole country to begin with, or a good part of it. So I, I find that really to be the most important project that he's done and uh, one that really is a landmark in the history of landscape architecture. And it's received quite a number of awards, uh, which backed me up on that. Um, yeah, he, uh, he makes forms, but yet he preserves, he, he just does it all. Yeah, I mean, he's not doing it alone, remember. I mean, there is an office behind him and whatever, but I think there, you know, he's the leader, you know, but uh, probably has a little bit more hands-on than someone who's running a large office and just doesn't have the time to spend on each of the projects. Uh, these things take a long time, and they're not working on a lot of projects at the same time. Uh, no, it's it's a unique practice, and he's a unique person. I, uh, although he taught these values in, in uh, the University of Geneva for many years uh, to architects, uh, sadly, I don't think there will be another Georges Decon. You know, uh, it's too much a unique um, trajectory in a way, in terms of his cultural background, his education, his sensibilities, uh, his connection to the arts. Uh, and various other factors, which all have contributed. I sound like a psychiatrist now, you know. I, this is my reading of him. I don't know if he would agree with this or not. Oh no, it's interesting that. Uh, but but you wrote this this beautiful book about all of his uh, his process and everything. Well, do you think that? Um, well, could there be another George de Combs? Do you think that his uh, processes could be implied to make our urban environments uh, better? Well, I think the lessons, I mean, one of the reasons you could say for doing the book is that the lessons are valuable and could be applied by other people on other sites, under other conditions, but in other ways. I mean, I think it's more the value system behind what he does that's more important and more uh, can be adopted by more people rather than a specific method or a specific sense of forms this idea of turning up the heat or the intensity or using conditions already found on the site. Uh, I don't think in some ways they're unique to, to him. You know, I, I think a lot of designers at least give lip service and say, this is what they're really doing uh, as a sales tool. Um, but, you know, I, I think they vary in their success and uh, the believability of the argument. Uh, we talk about you know like a little bit of the psychology behind it. Okay, I'll 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 run with that other question. Uh, my undergraduate is in psychology, and uh, I'll go to page uh, one eleven, and uh, he really gave a lot of interest to uh, design just a sandbox for children. And uh, you know, I really don't think about it later. Design really is psychology, and psychology is design in a sense. Uh, can you talk more about his process for just designing and putting so much, I don't know, uh, great attention to uh, the design for Sandbox for Children? Was it effective? Did it work? <laughs> I don't know what the, the official results would be. Uh, your reference there is in the Parc de Lancy, this project from uh, the 1980s, 
wherein uh, he just just observed uh, kids, and sometimes if they were in one big sandbox, they uh, kind of there were disputes over territory, and it caused some friction. So what he did in designing this particular one uh, was divided into sections. Of course, it's a beautiful form because he always does that. I think there were five, four or five sections. And then each of the walls around it were high enough to suggest you could sit on it or maybe use it as a little table. They were always serving double or, or triple functions. I mean, of course, people have said, yeah, what happens if there are six kids rather than five? Um, I don't know if there are ever six or what would happen if it did result. And I just look at it as being more indicative of uh, a concern or a consideration rather than a solution that could be universally adopted somewhere. Um, I think in the older days, uh, designers uh, with more of a cultural background and cultural feel were more aware of who they were designing for. Now there's a movement called evidence-based design, which means that you observe and look and study and whatever, which I would think every designer should be doing anyway. I don't think you need consultants to do that. But uh, in the past, I think landscape architects were a little more humanistic, and today they're getting to be more technical uh, because a lot of the problems facing us require large technical solutions, uh, but perhaps uh, giving short shrift then to the more social and cultural dimensions of landscape. Oh, that's true. I think so, because, uh, yeah, in class, it's like, uh, well, my psychology class, they, they taught us to sit and observe and uh, to measure and watch people um, in my experimental design class. But yeah, I kind of uh, felt like yeah, it was just more technical and not really sitting and um, giving attention to the site and really thinking about what's useful for the site. So really, that's kind of what he's really all about. Yeah, of course, it varies with the person. I mean, you can't make categorical decisions. And uh, some cultures are more uh, hom homogenous than what we have in the U.S. in most cities today. Uh, and the question is also is what what time is allowed to you, what kind of financing is. It's, it's not a simple question, and I don't mean it as a condemnation in general. It's just uh, designers have to pick what are the major issues that we have to address. And with climate change and other of these uh, environmental issues facing us, uh, it, it turns people away from some of the smaller scale decisions that affect people on a daily basis. So how can... Uh instructors or, or students today and professionals, how can they use your book? What, uh, what can they take from it into their practices that they can integrate from George? What can we learn? Well, I, I think, well, we've talked about this, what the, what the method is, what the lessons are, but also that uh, simplicity <laughs> might be a virtue. Uh, we're in an era, particularly for architects of very complex forms mainly because the computer can generate it and the computer can fabricate it in some ways. Um, I'm a firm believer in uh, simple forms with complex experience rather than complex forms with simple experience, uh, which is a, an approach sadly out of favor among, <laughs> among the professions, it seems. Um, in fact, one of the, the last books I did is a little book. It's really an essay called Austere Gardens, um, 
I think was it notes on simplicity and restraint and attending, uh, attending being borrowed from psychology here that uh, to attend is to listen or watch or pay attention to as an attention. Uh, and that how we look at things in many cases may be more important than what we're looking at. And I, I think we're in an era where people think that the more complex something is, the more interesting it is. And, uh, you know, I was trained as a modernist, so particular, maybe I've never left it in some ways, that I appreciate people that can do uh, really rich, experientially rich um, designs, spatial, rather than just form um, or interesting materials or an interesting facade that continues to give uh, different experiences over time. Um, and that also allow people to participate in it in some way. And uh, a lot of the work I see today is not that way. So, so maybe just a, a different take. And... Yeah, but uh, get, getting back to Georges anyway, uh, this probably needs to be edited. Uh, I think it shows that with kind of deep thinking, you can use simple means to affect complex experience or deal with complex issues. I mean, I often quote, uh, not quote, but make reference to uh, Japanese architecture because in the West, our notion of simplicity is often leaving stuff out. You know, Western modernism of the 20s and 30s, so-called international style, just left a lot of things out. There were no moldings and there were no pitch roofs and there were this thing. Well, in Japan, <clears throat> simplicity is related to compression, uh, that you have a simple form, but if you see it from 50 feet, you see one thing. When you get to 40 feet, you see something else. When you get close to it, you see something else. And then over time, of course, it changes and more things are revealed. So this idea of simplicity compressed within a, a form or complexity compressed within a simple form uh, to me, is very desirable. That's my value system. Ooh, I like that. Simplicity compressed into a simple form. That's No, complexity, complexity. compressed into a, simple into a simple form. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Well, I used to, in teaching, I used to, there used to be a cold remedy called contact. I don't think it exists anymore. And they had, uh, their advertising was that uh, this was a two-part capsule and the first part operated immediately and cleared your headache or something. And then the rest of it uh, gave you relief over 12 hours. And I thought that was a really good model for environmental design. You get an immediate impact uh, that's comforting, pleasing, whatever the effect, desired effect may be. And then the rest of it comes over time. I think that's a desirable uh, effect. Oh yes, I do. I do remember that. Uh, yeah, and it was yeah, it was uh, color coded too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I do remember. Um, well, I just I always like to ask, uh, what's your what's your favorite uh, Georges project quote or uh, any other tidbits that you'd like to tell us today about him? No, not really. Uh, and, you know, you like them all for different reasons. I mean, I, I wouldn't say favorite, but obviously the, the River Project is the most consequential and in a way summarizes and uses uh, the research and uh, 
what they've done in the in the earlier projects in some ways. Um, but I don't know of a f- favorite quote or <laughs> anything. No. That's okay. Um, they always ask Frank Lloyd Wright, what's your favorite building? And he said, the next one. <laughs> you know, so... I'll edit it to that. It'll be it'll be the next one. Um, and well, thank you so much um, for being here today, Mark. It's really been uh, a pleasure and a treat to meet you here over the over the internet. Um, and can you tell our audience what are you working on now? Um, well, there's one book that's emerging from a, a symposium we did a year ago called "The Aesthetics of Planting Design." which has 14 people from around the world talking about their work and uh, with a historical perspective. Uh, there's another book which will be out next year uh, that I'm writing with Susan Harrington at the University of British Columbia on the work of the Montreal landscape architect um, Claude Cormier. And in press, also with Oro, is a book that's looking at early thinking about modern landscape architecture in the West and in the East, uh, focusing only on two people, Christopher Tunnard in England and later United States, and Satemi Horiguchi in Japan. It's a, I call it a duograph rather than a monograph. And that also will be out in the springtime. Oh, well, we will look forward to hearing. I'm sure you'll be sending me those books too. (laughs) <laughs> if you wish <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk again uh, well again um, thank you so much Mark uh, for taking the time to be here today and uh, uh, I'll just let our audience know that this is again Mark Tribe and the book is Georges Decom Doing Almost Nothing uh, published by Oro Editions in 2018 And this has been Tricia, your host on the New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.